I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a band that showed up on Barack Obama's Spotify playlist this year. It's an author whose front yard keeps getting invaded by a local rock star, and it's a writer who has described his most recent young reader's novel as... The noir world feels like childhood to me. That's when you begin to get the notion that the people who are telling you the way the world is actually have no more clue than you do. It's... It's... Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with memoirist Michael Heald, Lemony Snicket author Daniel Handler, and music from the Double Clicks and Ages and Ages. It's all coming up on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole, who will watch the show and write a poem about all he's learned during the hour. And of course, we have music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Thanks, Ralph. So the end of the year is approaching, which means once again, we're all faced with figuring out a way to ring in the new year that reflects our hopes for the coming year, but doesn't set the bar so high that we're disappointed. Uh, We want to make it memorable, but not so memorable that we end up completely forgetting it. Um, I tend to enjoy low-key New Year's Eves, but I want to change things up somehow this year to start a new tradition and let the world know, you know, this year will be different. This year is my year. So I looked into New Year's traditions around the globe to to get some ideas on on what I should do this year. Went all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia, uh, where the Babylonians' New Year uh, was the first new moon after vernal equinox. And they celebrated what they called Akitu, or the festival of sowing barley, for 11 days. Now, a lot of complicated stuff happened during Akitu uh, involving a temple and a scepter and uh, the king taking a long journey to get hit very hard on the cheek by a holy man. That's actually true. Um, But I think that what the Babylonians got right was that you just don't stop drinking. You just, you keep the party going and that way you never have that moment of regret, at least not for 11 days. And I thought, okay, the 12th day has to come, so... That one's not going to work. The Danish actually throw their old plates at their friends' doors, um, which won't work for me either. Who has that many expendable plates? Like, or any expendable plates? Who has expendable plates? And I was thinking that Denmark and Switzerland are just like a hop, skip, and a Germany away from each other. So I actually think that Ikea may have something to do with starting this tradition. You know what? We should throw plates at everybody's house. Wouldn't it be fun, guys? I work at Ikea. Now, I could get together with my friends and mirror what they do uh, in the Belarus Republic. This is where single women compete on New Year's Eve to see who will be married first. And they each put a pile of corn in front of them, and they set a rooster free. And the woman whose corn the rooster eats first will be married first. 
Um, this is obviously difficult to do in an, urban, in an urban setting like Portland. I mean, most of my friends raise chickens, not roosters, so that's not going to work. Um, and while the tradition would be fairly easy to recreate at a bar by setting various micro-brews in front of single women and then just releasing a male patron, <laughs> that feels a little degrading on both people's parts. So I'm not going to do that one. Uh, in Spain, they eat 12 grapes at midnight, and they try to swallow all of them before the clock stops chiming. This also wouldn't work for me because I am allergic to choking. Uh, one, of, one of the New Year's traditions in Austria is Bleigießen, or the pouring of molten lead into a tub of water, and you have the shape, of the le- you, the shape that the lead takes determines your luck for the coming year. So a ball means good luck will roll your way. An axe means disappointment in love. A third degree burn over most of your left hand means you shouldn't have been playing with molten lead. And you're probably going to need to go to the hospital. Uh, I have about six months of bills. Um, Informational websites about Bleigießen also suggest that lead poisoning and lead particles in the eye are a possibility. So... This is a great option for anyone who is just sick of being healthy. Uh, But I was most intrigued by the Scottish tradition of first footing. This is where the first person to enter a house after midnight comes in and brings good fortune for the year. A dark-haired male is preferable. Females are generally considered unlucky. And I didn't know if that meant unlucky for the house or like unlucky in a sort of make 77 cents on the dollar in comparison to men and pay more for dry cleaning kind of way. They didn't make that clear. Um, But anyway, it said to be the luckiest, to just invite the first caroler that passes after midnight in and just then you just take him through the house so he can bring luck to every room. And this seemed to be the best idea of all. What a way to give the old heave-ho to the status quo, you know? Just, hello, stranger. Come on in. Let me show you where all my valuables are. Here's my jewelry, most of it's costume. Here are the three items that are actually worth something. Bonus. Looks great with your eyes. Here's my laptop and my printer. Uh, Just... Please take it all in trade for not locking me in my own coat closet. This has been really fun. I've actually been thinking that I'm too attached to things lately, and a good first footing would certainly cure me of that. But even with as great an idea as that seems, I actually don't think any of it is for me. So I think I'll just go on with my old tradition, which is to say that I want to change things up this year and let the world know that this year will be different. This year is my year, and then not do anything different ever because there is really something to be said for respecting traditions. Our musical guest tonight is a seven-piece band whose live shows feel like a cross between a rock show and a Sunday church service where the choir worships the holy harmonies of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Their debut album, All Right, You Restless, was so filled with joyful exuberance and unfettered optimism that the Obama campaign chose their song, No Nostalgia, for their campaign playlist. Here with songs from their upcoming release, please welcome Ages and Ages. Do the right thing, do the right thing. Do it all the time, do it all the time. Make yourself right, never mind them. Don't you know you're not the only one suffering? Do the right thing, do the right thing Do it all the time, do it all the time Make yourself right, never mind them Don't you know you're not the only one suffering? Do the right thing, do the right thing Do it all the time, do it all the time Make yourself right, never mind them Don't you know you're not the only one suffering I see you up again, wandering so diligently Crossing your T's as though it were irrelevant They say formality, this is what they really meant It could be the walk, and we could be the pain 
right thing, do the right thing. Do it all the time, do it all the time. Make yourself right, never mind them. Don't you know you're not the only one suffering? Look what you're up against, all the disingenuous. They push you along and say there's always room for us. But we know better than that to take them serious. Still don't let them make you bitter in the process. And when the light is up, this is how it ought to be. We'll make it all right, they'll come around More information can be found at agesandages.com. Do you need a bag? Well, thanks for shopping Best Mart. Next. Tim? Chris? Hey, man. I, I didn't know you worked here. Yeah, I'm assistant manager, but you know, with the holidays, I pull some cashier duty now and then. Yeah, cool. <laughs> hey, you ready to check out? Uh, no, that's okay. I'm good. Uh, what do you got there? This? Uh, oh, nothing. I was just... Uh... It looks like our Case Logic CD wallet. The one that I gave you for Chris? Yeah. Miss. Uh, oh. Huh. Uh, look, Tim, it was a really nice thought, but yeah. I, I just don't own CDs anymore, uh -huh. so there's really no need to... Oh, no. So, uh, so what? You want to return it? Well... Yeah. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. I'm no, sorry, no problem. man. It's... No, it's cool. I mean, a buddy, a buddy goes out of his way to get you an amazing Christmas present. A deluxe, leather-bound, Case Logic 1000 CD wallet album... And the first thing that you do is try and return it. Uh, look, Tim, I feel terrible. You know, I, I, I spent know. weeks thinking about what would be a good present for Chris. You know, weeks. But when I finally found it, I just, I knew it was going to be perfect for you. But, you know, whatever. No worries. It's fine. Uh, look, why don't I keep it? I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll come across a thousand CDs and I'll have a place to put them. Okay, okay. Don't patronize me, Chris. All right, it's fine. Okay. Do you have a receipt? No, you'd have that. Okay, well, without the receipt, I can only give you store credit. Okay, sure, that's fine. Okay, well, it looks like that was a sale item. Um, All right. It was 35 originally, marked down to 8. Hmm. Um, but, you, you know, when I saw it, I just, I thought, Chris just has to have this. I didn't even notice the price. I didn't even notice it was on sale. Right, right. But, but 35 originally, I mean... That's what counts. Huh. Well, it, um, you know, it's funny. It appears they also gave me the employee discount. <laughs> That's weird. Huh. Yeah, weird. Yeah, I, they must have done that when I wasn't even looking. Okay, so how much store credit will it be? About 450 Great. 
Great. Oh, oh, the computer here is telling me there's a company recall going on with this item. Yeah, something about the, the faux leather having a Chinese human organ thing going on. Okay, a lot of lawsuits. That, that's gross. Yeah, okay, well, with that factored in, it looks like we're going to break even. So, here. no store credit. Store credit for 0. 0.00. Great. Yeah. yeah. Wow, thanks. Happy holidays. Yeah. Well, here's your gift card with the remaining balance. Uh, would you like a complimentary Case Logic CD book? What? Oh, force of habit. We started giving them away with every transaction. You huh. know what? I will take one because you know I think you got a birthday coming up in a couple weeks, and I, I haven't gotten you anything yet. And this seems like a thoughtful gift for a friend I've known since the fourth grade. Yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to that. Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. You're listening to Live Wire Radio, and if you just tuned in, that's unfortunate because you just missed my seven-minute theremin and harmonica extended dance mix of the theme from Cagney and Lacey. But no worries, you can catch it in the podcast, and there's still more to come. Stick around for author Michael Heald, Lemony Snicket's handler, Daniel Handler, the Double Clicks, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market. Here to remind you that one of these days it's going to happen. Your friends are going to invite you over to watch the bowl game. And you'll point out that there's a new episode of This American Life about bad yearbook photos. And what if you just all gathered around the radio and listened to it like they did in the old days? Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. But at least you can go to town in the snack department. Whole Foods has everything you need to make delicious five-spice cranberry glazed chicken wings with four more spices than anyone's going to expect. And because their chicken is antibiotic-free, you'll score on the health side, too. For this and more winning game day recipes, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Our next guest, Michael Heald, is a writer and editor and the creator of the small press Perfect Day Publishing. His writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Silk Road Review, and Propeller Magazine, among others. His first book, Goodbye to the Nervous Apprehension, is a series of personal essays that deal with the end of his 20s as Heald takes stock of where he is and where he's going. Tonight, he's reading an essay about Stephen Malkmus. Malkmus is the former singer and guitarist for the 90s indie band Pavement. Uh, he's currently in the Jicks. Michael will be accompanied tonight by Skylar Norwood of the band Point Juncture Washington. Please welcome Michael Heald and Skylar Norwood to Livewire. November 2010, Portland, Oregon. Stephen Malkmus is standing on my front lawn. This shouldn't be a big deal. It's common knowledge that Stephen Malkmus lives in the neighborhood. He plays softball against people I know. One of my friends toured Europe in support of him. In the two-plus years since I moved back to Portland, I've seen him at Whole Foods, Laurelhurst Park, and once, only once, on stage. He's the sort of guy who has no problem slouching around in public. More than you'd like to admit, the idea of running into Stephen Malkmus has kept you going. 
In fact, when you really think about it, Stephen Malkmus is as responsible as anyone for changing your mind about Portland, for transforming it into a plausible home for someone like you. And of course, by you, I don't really mean you. February 2001, Middletown, Connecticut. For my 20th birthday, I'm given copies of Slanted and Enchanted and Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. I'm a sophomore in college taking my first fiction writing workshop. My stories are about the things I wish I'd done, but didn't have the guts or the wits to do. At the moment, the girl I've spent the past year sort of dating is boning one of our hallmates, Elder Cross player. I'm too involved internalizing Stephen Malcolmus's deep thoughts to hear them. January 2007, San Francisco, California. My girlfriend of four years and I have called it quits. Six months from now, I'll also quit San Francisco and my job and move to Nicaragua to write my important novel. But on this cold night, I don my leather jacket and scarf and walk alone to Bimbo's 365 Club to watch the Jicks. Stephen Malkmus has anticipated the mustache craze. He looks younger than I feel. I stay sober at the show, and unsurprisingly, I'm too self-conscious to play even a little air guitar or shout out my one and only request, Church on White, a song he wrote for his friend, the writer Robert Bingham, who overdosed on heroin when his first novel was still in galleys. When I get home, I open a bottle of whiskey and listen on headphones to the song I didn't feel comfortable asking for. Whatever I'm expecting to feel during the guitar solo, I don't. January 2002, Brighton, England. Study abroad. I wasn't supposed to have a roommate, but here are his things. An amplifier, a laptop, an ashtray. Copies of Siddhartha and Tropic of Cancer. Robin, my roommate, tells me he's in the process of dropping out of college. We buy a glass chess set together. He confesses his best friend overdosed when they were still in high school. He's pretty sure nobody wants to be friends with him anymore. I move to an empty room upstairs after he makes a pass at me. Somehow, over the next six months, we learn how to become friends. We obsess over music. We drink absinthe and smoke hash and date a French girl and a Chilean. We take the train to London and go to the best shows we'll ever see. I tell Robin I'm going to become a writer. Robin's not sure what he's going to become. When it's time to go back to America, I intentionally avoid saying goodbye. I leave a pile of books outside his door, a door that, for a time, was my door. December 2007, Leon, Nicaragua. I take a photo of the first draft of my novel. My ex-girlfriend wants to know if I'm moving back to San Francisco. My answer depends on whether or not I've taken someone home the night before. My answer depends on just how big a splash I'm going to make with the novel. My answer depends and depends and depends until nearly three years pass and April writes to inform me that she's moved in with someone else. January 2009, Portland, Oregon. Your writing is illuminating and your character is painfully honestly written. One of our manuscript readers is truly over the moon about your book. He gave it the most positive feedback he's ever given a work in our office. In the end, however, we did not connect enough. We are certain you will do well with this and other projects. We wish only to offer you encouragement. August 2005, San Francisco, California. I spend the summer between jobs with hopes of writing a novel, something big. Instead, all I have at the end of the summer is a twisted little story about two young Americans who meet while studying abroad, then run into each other a couple years later. One of the Americans has adjusted his expectations. The other has become, if anything, more ambitious. The ambitious one sees a rivalry, where the other one sees a friendship. They do it. The the ambitious one believes he's won, For the hell of it, I send the story off to a few literary journals. It gets published. It wins a contest. I have no choice. At least, I don't think I have any choice but to save up and leave the country and write a novel. January 2009, Portland, Oregon. My novel's not getting published. I find myself living in my hometown, broke, working a job I detest. I join a band because I don't know if I can write anymore. Every evening, I end up online, almost against my will, measuring my circumstances against those of people I used to know. 
One night, I decide to look up Robin. I've been putting it off for years, unsure how to explain my disappearance from his life, unsure how to explain these stories I've written that are and are not about him. On Facebook, I find a sister, but not him. One of her photo albums is entitled R.I.P. Robin. He killed himself in 2007 when I was in Nicaragua. I write to Anna and tell her everything I remember about her brother. For once, I leave myself out of it. November 2010, Portland, Oregon. Stephen Malcolmus is on my front lawn playing with his daughter. I can hear the number 20 whistling down Burnside. If I don't run, I'm going to miss it. My parents are expecting me for dinner. I don't know what to say to Stephen Malcolmus. He can tell that I've recognized him. I can tell he's recognized me. Part of me wants to say, Stephen Malcolmus, I hereby declare you responsible for the events of this past decade. Screw you for convincing me that any of this was possible. Of course, I don't say anything. I watch Stephen Malcolmus crouch down and zip up his daughter's coat. He's not responsible for me, or April, or Robin. He's just somebody's father. I turn the corner without looking back. My 20s are ending, and I'm working on expectations. I can see I've expected too much from everyone, most of all myself. And yet, I'm writing again. I'm halfway across the Burnside Bridge, half an hour late for dinner, when I pull my iPod out of my backpack and look out at my city. Michael's debut memoir is Goodbye to the Nervous Apprehension. So here at Livewire, uh, we occasionally put aside uh, our sketch comedy hats and we do our bit for the public good in the form of actual journalism. Recently, the state of Washington legalized marijuana, so we sent correspondent Sean McGrath out to check out the first marijuana department store at the site of a former Ross Dress for Less in Spokane. Sean, uh... Sean, are you, are you there? Yeah, uh, hi, Courtney. I'm here at the opening of the Marijuana Marche, and uh, <laughs> things are bustling. Well, so tell us what you're seeing, Sean. Well, based on the crowds, I'd say they're doing a brisk business. They've got quite an impressive array of products on three levels. Acapulco Gold, Afghan Kush, and Golden Sunset. Uh, Purple Haze is 20% off if you sign up for some club card. You sound a little disappointed, Sean. Well, they made me put on a shirt, Courtney. Well, it is a public retail space. Yeah, well, it's too bright, for one, and the bongs are all made in China, and the sample lady's trying to pass off some Kansas ditchweed as Cambodian red. Yeah, I'm not buying it, lady. Ouch. It's just not the same, you know? As what, Sean? Listen, Courtney, can I be frank? Please do. You can fill a mall venue with glass display cases and offer a wide selection and super saver coupons... But that's not what marijuana is about. It's about basement apartments at 10 a.m., playing Xbox with your dealer because you have to stay for a half hour or his neighbors will think he's selling drugs. It's about getting to know the other people on that couch, the people who came in before you and are still playing Xbox and maybe have been there for days. You don't know. They seem familiar. It's about consumer loyalty and a possible classy misdemeanor depending on the weight. So Washington can keep their hydroponically grown chronic, their state-set fair trade prices, and their accurate weighing systems. But me, I'm going home. Home to Oregon. Back to my guy, because my guy, he never closes. 
He's open 24-7 because he never leaves his apartment. Hell, he never leaves that couch. That's good customer service, man. And sure, I don't know his last name. But you know what? I've never needed it. And yeah, he's got some crazy theories about the Kennedy assassination. Maybe time travel and the Illuminati were involved. I don't know. The point is, there's nothing for me here. All I need is my guy, Call of Duty 4, a couch and 80 bucks. I wish the people of Washington all the best, but I believe in supporting small business. Also, there is no way in hell I'm ever paying sales tax for weed. But, Sean, I I'm sorry, they take credit cards, right? That's different. Oh, they do? Oh, I'm gonna grab a shopping cart. Uh, you guys take Discover. His truth is marching on. That was Sean McGrath, Christian Ferguson, and Andrew Harris. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, which presents a brief history of the desk. In 1733, Archbishop Thomas Drawer invented the drawer. To mix reviews and contemporary press, later in 1786, Sir Reginald Fitzdrawer Handel invented the drawer with handles, which helped. There's been very little development in desk technology since. Until now, Ergo Depot's sit-stand desks allow you to work from a sitting, standing, or intermediary position at the flick of a switch. Fitz drawer handle would be proud. More information can be found at ergodepot.com. Well, as we mentioned earlier on the show, the New Year approaches and everyone is scrambling to make sure New Year's Eve is festive for everyone. And since it falls on a Tuesday this year, that includes uh, some businesses, actually. So here with a song about some people who really know how to ring in the New Year, please welcome the Double Clicks. This New Year's party While everyone is drinking punch And wearing shiny hats The accountants all complain About how boring we all are And how we wouldn't know fun If it sat down in our laps Because in June The accountants have themselves a party They spend our unspent budget And roll up their starchy sleeves they hire girls and drink until they're swaying and they sing Happy New Fiscal Year's Eve At the accountant's party there are live bands and live tigers There's a leaning tower of Gouda and magicians juggle fire At the accountant's party after hard work and all-nighters they drown their work while mingling with cage dancers and cage fighters. Cause in June, the accountants have themselves a party. They spend our unspent budget and roll up their starchy sleeves. They hire girls and drink until they're swaying and they sing. Happy New Fiscal Year's Eve. Remember last year they ask where did we get that rhino The one Don rode on naked while he hunted that albino Remember last year they ask when Robert lost his wedding ring After he was arrested for punching Skrillex or was it Sting? The accountants aren't impressed by our office New Year's party our gift exchange is boring and the potluck's just so-so. They sit and reminisce about their wacky bacchanalia where the white powder covering the ballroom isn't snow because in June the accountants have themselves a party. They spend our unspent budget and roll up their starchy sleeves. They hire girls and drink until they're swaying and they sing Happy New Fiscal Year's Eve Happy New Fiscal Year's Eve The Double Clicks! Angela and Aubrey They're sisters!
Next up on the show is Daniel Handler, who, uh, next to Ralph Huntley, is the most dazzlingly energetic, passionate accordionist we have ever had on the show. He played on the, on the Magnetic Field 69 Love Songs box set, as well as writing lyrics to the song Radio by theremin accordion duo One Ring Zero. But he's most well-known as an author, having written 13 installments in Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events, as well as novels like The Basic Eight, Watch Your Mouth, and last year's Why We Broke Up with illustrations by Myra Kalman. This year, he's reviving the Lemony Snicket character after six years for a new book, All the Wrong Questions. The first book in the series is Who Could That Be at This Hour? A noir-esque kid's mystery featuring a 12, almost 13-year-old Snicket tasked with getting a statue back into the hands of its rightful owners, even though it may already be there. Please welcome Daniel Handler to Livewire. Hello. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, ma'am. Your, your series of Unfortunate Events uh, series was sort of gothic in nature. Yes. This series is set in the world of noir. And yes. you said uh, earlier on in the show that the noir world feels like childhood to you. And you talked about one way that was true. What are, what are some of the other ways that... I, as I was finishing writing a series of Unfortunate Events, I was reading a uh, Raymond Chandler novel, and it just occurred to me that... The detective, an outsider in the world, um, given various tasks that turn out to have either way less meaning or way more meaning than the people assigning them, tell him and he tries to find his own moral path in a corrupt and confusing world full of liars and other deceitful creatures. That's childhood. That's growing up. That's the... <laughs> That's absolutely true. The journey true. we all take to adulthood and then we start lying and deceiving children of our own. <laughs> that is super touching. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're moved by that. <laughs> in, I feel I've learned a lot about you that you find that touching. <laughs> do you, in what ways was your own, do you think that your own childhood was noirish? Um, I was spying on people all of the time. Were you? Yeah. You were sort of a voyeur as a child. Uh, well, that would be a polite way of putting it, I guess. Um, I was convinced that there was a secret world underneath the placid surface of what I saw. And I think I was more or less right. And then as I became an adolescent, I was a fan of noir, and I would dream of the glamorous world in which I would get to grow up and wear a suit and say clever remarks that might end in gunfire. <laughs> so how did you spy on people? And women, women. I was into Lots, the women. Yeah, yeah, you were into the chicks? Well, the chicks in noir novels were so glamorous. Yes. You know, they would lead you away from a party to a room, and you would have to sit and talk with them very earnestly about their problems, and then they would turn out to lie to you, and so you would say some witty remark and pour another last of scotch from the decanter. It was a world I dreamed of accessing one day. <laughs> and I'm I guessing you were five at this yeah. point. <laughs> uh, no, by that time, I think I was 12 or 13, yeah. yeah. I would go to, you know, bar mitzvah parties and imagine that they would become the glamorous world of the big sleep. Mm-hmm. They never did, no. Well, it was I, just the small Haftorah. <laughs> Nobody lives in the big sleep. I know. You know, except yeah. Raymond Chandler's characters. Um, Thanks I, for pointing that out, shattering that <laughs> dream. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't realize you were still holding on to it. Oh, absolutely. That is my fault. That is my bad. Um, <laughs> uh, so I I'll wanted... get my revenge. You know, the tooth fairy? Total myth, corny. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Now we're even. That was your parents reaching under your pillow and leaving a dollar there. That's all it was. So I shouldn't have been ripping out my teeth last week because <laughs> no, I needed to pay yeah. my electric bill? Wow. That Time is, for that another is live wire pledge break, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh... <laughs> so this book is, is very funny. Thank you. Um, and... and uh, I actually wanted you um, to, to read a quick passage just to kind of give people an idea of some of the language of it. Um, and it's, it's just a very funny... Do you have a copy funny... of the book there, Matt? I do happen Marked to have... Marked with a post-it by any chance? A, a copy of the book in what my luck? hand. Uh, no, our narrator, uh, otherwise known as Lemony Snicket, is working closely with a woman named Theodora, and they have um, broken into a house. Uh, well, their plan is to break into a, to slip into a house and steal an item. Um, one way to keep one's voice down is to stop talking altogether, which is also one way not to argue with somebody. 
I beckoned to Theodora, and we slipped into the house and made our way up the spiral staircase, Theodora pressing herself against the walls of the lighthouse and swiveling her head this way and that, and me walking like a normal person. <laughs> I led her into the newsroom, removed the sheet, and pointed to the statue of the abominating beast. She gestured to me that I should be the one to take it. I gestured back that she was the chaperone and the leader of this caper. She gestured to me that I shouldn't argue with her. I gestured to her that I was the one who had gotten us into the house in the first place. She gestured to me that my predecessor knew that the apprentice should never argue with the chaperone or complain, and that I might model my own behavior better after his. I gestured to her asking what the S stood for in her name, and she replied with a very rude gesture, and I grabbed the statue and tucked it into my vest. It, it was lighter than I thought it would be, and I felt less like a burglar and more like someone who was simply carrying an object from one place to another. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Livewire, and we're talking to Daniel Handler about his book, Who Could That Be at This Hour? Um, what I loved about this scene, it felt, this felt like uh, an Abbott and Costello movie to me, this scene. Oh, yeah? And, and there's so many things. Uh, well, I mean, there's... <laughs> it's, it may not be what, what, what you... But it, it felt very sort of cinematic to me. And, and I modeled it after a Nabokov novel, but no, Abbott and Costello's. <laughs> That's fine, Sue. Every author's dream. <laughs> well, the, one of the reasons that I thought of this is that I know that you, that you almost watch exclusively really old movies. And it feels like there's so many characters in this. Obviously, you've got the sort of grizzled um, Lemony Snicket, and then the detective, and then you've got a sort of a His Gal Friday character in here. And I was just wondering, did you write this in part so that this world wouldn't die with this generation? Oh, is it dying with this generation? I wouldn't know. I wrote it because that it's the world of noir novels and noir movies that felt like it belonged to the world of Lemony Snicket's childhood. I mean, technically, this new series is kind of a prequel to a series of unfortunate events. Lemony is a young man, and he's not yet the old, haggard figure that he is in a series of unfortunate events. And I like the idea that when he was young, he would be in a Raymond Chandler novel, and he would kind of grow up and become Heathcliff of Wuthering Heights. That charms me. <laughs> Heathcliff was a very charming guy. No, you were one of those girls, were you? Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> Only in real life. Yeah. Locked in your room, listening to Kate Bush. Man, oh man. <laughs> yes. Shut up! Um... <laughs> I do know that... that we you, boys always had crushes on you girls, but you always wanted the football players. Yeah. You know what we I enjoy could meet a smart women? man, a lonely man. Oh, I'm smart and lonely over here. Oh, no, that guy's cuter. He's popular. Yeah. <laughs> um, just go, going back to the young audience. Sure. Um, you, <laughs> you have mentioned that you read a lot of noir novels. Yes. And, and Raymond Chandler specifically. And there's a couple of Chandler quotes from Farewell, My Lovely. She was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. And from the big sleep, it seemed like a nice neighborhood to have bad habits in. Um, how do you go about creating language that sounds like that, but is for kids? Um, well, pretty much the only thing that you have to remove is um, certain chemical use, and um, you have to turn romantic attachment into the fraught friendship that happens in fourth and fifth grade rather than the twisted sexual complications of what I'm told happens when you get older. Um, <laughs> um, but other than that, it's really the same thing. Being, yeah. a, being a lonely figure looking out on things is, um, in many ways, much more the realm of childhood than it is adulthood, I think. Well, absolutely. Uh, there's also, though, there's a, there is a definite femme fatale in this yes. book. And in, obviously, in, you know, in, in a Raymond Chandler novel, she's going to use her sexuality quite a bit. So what did you kind of replace that with, with this character? Well... I mean, I guess technically it's the same sexuality, Bruno Bettelheim would say. But uh, Sure, Bruno. We're always bringing him up on Livewire. Um, <laughs> but uh, Ellington Faint is the name of the femme fatale, and I think she's the kind of alluring uh, 12-year-old girl that is perhaps technically pre-sexual allure, particularly if you're a 42-year-old man talking about her. But... Um, <laughs> But has, is uh, mysterious and dark and deceitful in the ways that plenty of 12-year-old girls can be. 
Oh, absolutely. If not all 12-year-old girls. <laughs> In some ways, it seems like 12-year-old girls are better at it than grown women. Um, they certainly, they were better at doing it to me when I was in seventh grade. I'm looking at you, Nancy Cutler. Yeah. <laughs> Don't or, say her name. Don't say her name out loud. It's bad. We're just I calling know. her She's out. She's fine. On. She married a doctor. <laughs> so uh, uh, you you started writing children's books before you had a child yourself. Your son yes. Otto is eight years old. Just turned nine. Oh, just turned nine. Yeah, I'm sorry. We didn't invite you to the birthday party because we. <laughs> Thought it would be awkward. (laughs) So what has being Otto's father taught you about writing for kids? Oh, what has it taught me? Well, when he was a baby, I was finishing a series of unfortunate events, and I thought it was a tremendous boon, because when you have a baby, it's little more than brainstorming what could go wrong with a child. You know, you have a small baby who's really, when he's tiny, it's like like a Ziploc bag of blood. You don't even... you're, (laughs) You're scared to put him down anywhere... And you, and you suddenly learn, you know, to walk into a room and look at the corners of coffee tables and things that you never looked at before. And that really helped me go home and then brainstorm of terrible things that happened to orphans. So I think that helped a lot. <laughs> that um, is not the way that I, I thought that was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> My, how the time flies. <laughs> It has flown. Um, I'd love to sit and chat for, for the rest of the hour, but you actually have a treat for us. We have an accordion here for you, and you are going to perhaps... I guess I'm going to play it. This is my second live wire appearance, and so I was encouraged to come up with another song. But um, I, do, I just have to uh, take off my coat. I need someone to hold my coat. To hold your coat? How about Colin Malloy, the Decemberist? Could he hold my coat? About to play the accordion is Daniel Handler. His book is Who Could That Be at This Hour? It's the first in a new series, All the Wrong Questions. Yeah. Mr. Malloy and I have shared a stage before, but this is the dynamic I'm most comfortable with. <laughs> Clean shirt, new shoes I don't know where I'm going to Silk suit, black tie I don't know the reason why They come running just as fast as they can Cause every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man His new book is Who Could That Be at This Hour? So science, pop culture, advice, you have questions and we have answers that may or may not be correct. 
Our live audience has written their queries and sent them to the stage, and now they will be answered enthusiastically and borderline accurately by our cast and guest in a segment we like to call Dear Livewire. Melissa asks, do you have a zombie plan? If so, please describe. We don't really want to spread details for security reasons, but I can tell you it involves a chainsaw, a wind turbine, and 50 pounds of marshmallow fluff. <laughs> Daniel Handler. Uh, Rocco asks, why do men have nipples? Oh, Rocco, men don't have nipples. Only you do. It's time you learned. You're a medical freak. Your mother has bribed every man you've ever seen with his shirt off to wear prosthetics. And all of your lovers, shuddering against your skin, are not in the throes of passion, but revulsion. Daniel Handler. Great job, great questions, great answers on Dear Livewire. Dear Livewire is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing Company, whose seasonal beer, Snow Day Winter Ale, is hoppy with subtle chocolate and caramel flavors. It's like that cup of hot cocoa after a long day of building snowmen, only it's not cocoa, it's a beer. And you're just eating the marshmallows out of the bag because you're a grown-up and you can do whatever you want now. More information can be found at newbelgium.com. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, ages and ages.
Scott Poole has been watching the show, and now he is on stage to give us his take on the whole shebang, the whole hour. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I only say resolution around New Year's. And it's just not a word I use in my everyday life that much. So it's my resolution to shoehorn the word resolution into my non-resolution conversations. Because my resolution is such a great domineering way to start a sentence. It has a bit of Baroque about it, don't you think? It sounds like you're about to introduce legislation in our nation's House of Representatives, or at least open an Ikea that it's a shame we don't use it more during the rest of the year. For example, while purchasing a marijuana plant in Vancouver, Washington, walking into a mercantile like a normal person, it's my resolution to buy a marijuana plant by saying, it's my resolution to buy a marijuana plant every day this week. Oh, marijuana mercantiler before me, because America must resolve to dance in the New Year's of its voting, and its native plant shall be that centerpiece of said resolution, because it already has been inadvertently jitterbugged about more than any other fauna in the contiguous and non-contiguous United States at accountant parties and parties attended by those more or less resolved to be adequate at the skill of mathematics, statistics, and rudimentary book keeping or grooming because this may seem like just an exchange of legal tender to you it is my resolution to make an overblown grand gesture of freedom which I will revel in until at least 3 p.m. on Tuesday Colin Malloy handle my jacket <laughs> happy new year's Scott Poole everybody that's our show for tonight thank you so much for listening Our thanks to our guests, Michael Heald, Daniel Handler, The Double Clicks, and Ages and Ages. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. 
Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister and performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, Chelsea Kane, and The Double Clicks. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound and Eileen Hagen Accordion Studio. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.